So if you were not with us last week, uh, I am taking the summer to prepare us for what is next. And uh, I'm going to do that in a couple of ways. Uh, This four-week series that I'm doing right now out of the book of Titus called uh, The Next Life on the Island of Now. Uh, The letter of Titus speaks to a cultural setting that really lived in the moment without ever thinking about what was next, let alone preparing for it and moving into it. And Titus had this rather difficult job building on Paul's foundation to uh, take these people who were really just kind of lost in the now and building on that foundation and moving these people forward into all that God had in store for them. So we're looking through that. We looked at the next ones last week. We're going to look at the next generation today and and then continue next couple weeks. And I'm going to be uh, gone on vacation for a couple weeks. And when I come back in August, we're going to look at the book of Colossians where we consider next not novel. In other words... uh, We don't want to do what's next just for the sake of doing something new as much as deepening what has already been revealed and living out all that God has demonstrated we should. And I want us to do this in Titus and Colossians this summer because in the fall we're going to use the book of Acts and uh, for the academic year unfolding all that God has in store for his church, the next I'm calling it, beyond Jesus' completed work on the earth. Christ had to come and complete his work, but that was just, and it was absolutely essential, and without it we would be hopeless. But on it, he intends much to be built and much to be done beyond it. And so we're going to look at that uh, beginning in the fall, and I want to prepare us this summer for that. Now, last week we understood the setting of this letter to Titus, as I said, an island full of people just kind of lost in the now. And the answer to starting to change that, being the next ones, Uh, was to see that God wants to grow something in us. Right in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul says that he's all about the faith of God's elect and the knowledge that leads to godliness. Paul's purpose in all he does surrounds faith, presumably birthing and growing, and then knowledge that leads to godliness, not intellect. So as clearly as I could say say it, God wants to grow your faith, not your understanding. Understanding will grow, but what he he wants to grow is your faith. Because all of the knowledge in the world will not gain you a relationship with him. But the simplest act of absolute faith in him will. And from that, he grows other things, like knowledge and behavior. And so we challenged ourselves a little bit on what that looks like personally. Now this week, I want us to consider a danger, a peril that faces every generation. I said last week that, you know, we're like a, we're just a chicken coop here, man. We're just, it's just us chickens along with the almighty God. And we are responsible for our generation and the one that follows us. Now, how do we, if it's just us, How do we keep from becoming a one-and-done generation church? How do we make sure there there are the, the next ones that are coming out of this chicken coop? What about the next generation? And that's what Timothy, I'm sorry, Titus chapter 2 speaks to, which I'd like to read. So Titus chapter 2, you have notes in your bulletin, a piece of paper you can take notes on, and on there is the page number. If you have trouble finding that, it's in the New Testament. Uh, And I'm beginning to read in chapter 2. 
You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So out of this passage, I'd like to answer this question. Is this concern about the next generation an important question? Let me show you how important that question is. Picture's about to uh, appear on the screen, and this you may recognize as modern-day Turkey. In the scriptures in the New Testament, it's known as Asia Minor. And there is a, a, an initial part of the book of Revelation that addresses seven churches, literal churches, that existed in this part of the world. And they're up here listed in this area here. We've got to Ephesus and Smyrna and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, all in this area right here. Now, to these churches, the Lord had something interesting to say, different things to each one of them, but to many of them, he had a warning. To Ephesus, he said, if you do not repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, you won't exist anymore. To Pergamum, he said, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come and fight against them. To Thyatira, he calls for repenting of their ways or suffering will come. To Sardis, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. To Laodicea, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. I want you to listen to me, I want you to invite me in, I want you to change. And if you don't, yeah. Yeah. All of these churches got honorable mention in the scriptures, some with great virtues, some with faults, but all were warned about the future if they didn't continue the way they were supposed to. Now we need to consider modern-day Turkey today. Hmm. Now is when my gray hair really, really shows. Because I can remember, now some of you know that I wanted to serve God in, in, in a country outside of this one from about as long as I can remember. And so I was always kind of looking that way and finding out about it, and I can remember very, very clearly, I wasn't that old, uh, when I was told that you could count the number of believers in that area of the world, true believers, on two hands. In 1960, 10 people in that entire region of the world, we knew of that knew the Lord Jesus Christ, truly. Ten. Now, the good news is that in 2010, <laughs> that number has grown to 4,000, which is wonderful news. And the church is growing there. However, 
before century, there was an incredible dearth and barrenness, an entire part of the world with no witness for Jesus Christ whatsoever. And you want to think about that. This was an area of the world that was evangelized, traveled, discipled, prepared, and multiplied by the Apostle Paul himself. He planted one of the churches that is mentioned in the seven churches and was influential in the others coming into being. But they were dead for generations. Why? Because they did not consider this important question of the next generation. Somewhere along the way, something broke. It's a very important question. May I mention another example? I'm going to read from a, a portion of a book uh, called uh, For the City, Proclaiming and Living Out the Gospel by Darren Patrick and Matt Carter. And Matt, uh, in this chapter, is explaining how he's meeting with a group of individuals with whom he's about to plant a church. And they're asking what kind of church this should be. And so he says this. Imagine an urban church so influenced by the power of the gospel that it seized every opportunity to proclaim and live out the gospel for the good of that city. Imagine that this church physically and spiritually served the poorest of the poor, but also lovingly rebuked the wealthy. Imagine this church as the epicenter of straight-up, God-fearing, spirit-filled revival, leading thousands of people to eternal life in Christ in just a few years. Imagine a church that built elderly housing, housed all the orphans in the city, and taught wealthy business people to have a double bottom line so that they could run a profitable business in order to support the work of the church and meet the needs of the city. In other words, imagine a church that boldly preached the gospel and lived out the values of the kingdom. Don't you want to be a part of a church like that? Of course, who wouldn't, they answered. What if I told you that the church model I'm describing is as trusted, tried, and true as any you'll find, I said. Well, what model is it, they asked. Metropolitan Tabernacle, I replied, receiving blank stares in return, just like are on your faces right now. Where is it? Who's the pastor? One team member asked. A thin smile spread across my face. London, 1852. The pastor is Charles Spurgeon. For those who may not be familiar with Charles Spurgeon or his church, a bit of background may be necessary. The Industrial Revolution began in the United Kingdom in the latter half of the 18th century, and by the 1850s, its effect pervaded England. In this period of great industrialization, people left the farms and small towns and flocked to London, Manchester, and other large cities. As people congregated in vast numbers, the old infrastructure of London lacked the capacity and resources to attend to the needs of the new crowds. The influx of people into London meant not only a spike in laborers and factories, but also the number of under-resourced women, children, orphans, and widows that exploded in London. The city was in crisis. The leaders didn't know what to do. They saw the mountain of needs that confronted them from every angle. Thus, in the 1850s, a lot of London churches did what a lot of American churches have done in these last 30 years. They fled the cities. These churches moved their locations to the outskirts of London. But Metropolitan Tabernacle, pastored by Charles Spurgeon, 
decided we're not going to do that. We're going to stay here. We see this as an opportunity for the gospel. Metropolitan Tabernacle looked at the needs of the people in the city and began to engage in helping them with their problems. The problems of the desperately poor were the most pressing. So Metropolitan Tabernacle leaders created almshouses for people who lost their jobs and needed time to get back on their feet. The poor houses of, in London operated in terrible conditions, but the almshouses of Metropolitan Tabernacle provided a crucial alternative. The church also built a large number of homes for the elderly where they would care for them and help them die with dignity and in peace. The church created an orphanage where they educated, cared for, and fed thousands of orphans. They created homes for single mothers who had lost their husbands and helped them find employment. Metropolitan Tabernacle started a school for pastors from rural areas to receive a theological education and help clothe and provide books for these impoverished pastors. They started programs for businessmen to use their entrepreneurial efforts to expand the kingdom through their businesses. Metropolitan Tabernacle's influence spread so quickly throughout the poor, throughout the poor all the way up the class ladder to the aristocracy. It got to the point that if Metropolitan Tabernacle had shut down at any point during the decade of this decade of grappling with the problems of the Industrial Revolution, the city of London would have been crippled. They would have grieved the loss of the tabernacle. Can you imagine serving the needs of the city, being so attuned to the common good for the sake of the gospel that your city would grieve if you picked up and left? Would anybody know if we just left? With all of this focus on serving the poor and meeting the needs of people, you might be wondering, did Spurgeon ignore preaching the gospel? The answer is clear, absolutely not. So many people began coming to church, including many lost people who had never attended church, that Spurgeon asked his Christian members not to attend worship once a month so that lost people would have space to come. I've noticed that you practice that. <laughs> Spurgeon saw 5,000 people coming to worship each week and his collections of sermons are regarded as some of the finest gospel preaching ever published. What Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle did that was so radical and unique was to seize the opportunity all around them afforded by the needs of the people in London. It was a ministry to all people. And ultimately, the ministry pulled in not just the poor, but also the wealthy and the influential. So that's what I told my church planting friends. That's my model, Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Preach the gospel, meet the needs of the city, especially the poor. And that's what we started doing. Now I have two observations and a story to follow this illustration. First observation, the gospel is never about words without deeds, ever. Because faith without words and faith without deeds is dead. It is about the love of God demonstrated in word and deed. Second observation. The largest growing sector of poverty in America, listen to me, is suburban poverty. Did you know that? 
more people are becoming poor where we live now than are becoming poor in the center of our cities. That's why our pantry is so ravaged. Now don't you want to help? We have opportunity in our wealth, spiritually and materially, to answer the need with the gospel of God offered in word and deed. Charles Haddon Spurgeon has been influential in Christians among all kinds of denominations. He's known as the Prince of Preachers. He preached to around 10 million people in his lifetime, up to 10 times a week. The Metropolitan Tabernacle was one of the precursors of the megachurch. His weekly sermons sold for a penny apiece. Kind of gives a penny for your thoughts a whole new meaning, doesn't it? And they are some of the most still widely distributed published readings in Christendom. Now, here's the rest of the story. I went to London on my way back from my trip. And I wanted to go to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So I went to the concierge at the hotel and I said, can you tell me how to get to the Metropolitan Tabernacle? Never heard of it. You've got to be kidding me. It is an historical, it's an historic edifice. It, it's, it, 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 it dominates the square in which it sits. He'd never heard of it. Charles Spurgeon? Nothing. Well, surely the cabbie would know. So we go and we get a cab, we get in a cab and we're like, can you take us to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, please? No idea. Charles Spurgeon mean anything to you? Never heard of it. I had an address. Now, the address is not a street address. It's just the meeting of two roads, Elephant and Castle. So I said that. He said, oh, I know where Elephant and Castle are. So he drives us there. He pulls up, and this is the building right there, dominating the whole thing. He goes, well, that's the only church I know that could be here. I said, that's it. Never heard of it. Why? Something broke along the way. And something didn't lead to a generation that would carry it and continue to do the things that they had done. Now, the church still exists. It was full. It's coming back. But even on their website, the current pastor says, there was a day when we filled just a few pews at the front of the church because the church basically died. How can we avoid this? How can we replicate what that church used to do? May I suggest something out of the passage today? This principle, pairs, not peers. It's not that peer friendship is bad. It's just that that's not the answer to the future, to the next generation. And this is so countercultural for us. What is so common and respected in most societies around the world, age and experience and wisdom, is laughed at in our culture. We're reproducing generations every few years. They used to be defined by 20 years, and they're not anymore. We reproduce them at the cost of everyone that's gone before. We sing songs that say every generation blames the one before. We laugh at experience, at wisdom, at discernment, because it's old. 
because they wear fanny packs. That's so 80s. I know. We, my generation used to laugh at the 60s. I mean, who dressed like that anyway? What's the matter with those people? Take a bath. We do it, don't we? This is so countercultural. Now, a long and interesting study would be considering each of the terms in this passage and their significance, and you can do that, and you should do that. And there's lots of resources out there, too. So what I'm going to do for the sake of time and not getting lost in perspective is I want to give you some broad strokes that you can then populate with specific information right out of this passage. And this is what I want to give you, the pairs. This passage is clear, that there are pairs, not peers. And the pairs are a leader and a follower. And in each one of these, they have a particular attribute that they are supposed to demonstrate. The leaders are supposed to demonstrate an example, and the followers being learners. So let's look at it. The leaders are to be examples. And the key verse is verse 7. In everything, set them example. Notice, by doing what is good. Not just saying. He does tell them to teach what is sound doctrine. But he says, by doing what is good. Set an example. And then he says, in your teaching, show integrity. What's integrity? Integrity is wholeness. Remember, we've talked about that before. That's making sure that everything is included. That you don't just say one thing and do another. But rather, they're all brought together. Do what you say. And look at the descriptions of this example. He's older men. You're to be temperate and worthy of respect, self-control, sound in doctrine, love, and endurance. Do you see that these describe behaviors of example? They're not curriculums to teach or programs to run, though those aren't bad necessarily in and of themselves. But this is about setting an example to be followed. Now, when I didn't have all this gray hair, and I was in college, the big thing was making sure that you were discipled and that you were a part of a discipling process. And there was a professor at school that had been very, very effective. This in the, country, in the state of Rhode Island, interestingly enough, not exactly the Bible belt. And he was brought down there to, to, to help multiply this process. So he had a program, and you got this you know, black notebook, and, and you, you went through page after page, and you memorized verses, and you filled in, you know... Uh, the spots so that you got all the answers right, and you met with your discipler as you being a disciple. And I was discipled by this guy. I was discipled by this guy. And I got all the answers right. And I learned all the verses. And that guy ended really, really poorly. My discipler, the one that was supposed to be influencing me. Really, really bad finish. And even in my relationship with him, it was such a forced thing. It was a program. And in order for me to be able to become one of those, I had to be one of these. And so I, you know, I just kind of got up and I did my thing with him. And then I, you know, grabbed my notebook and went after somebody else. Now you fill in all the things and you eat with me and I tell you. And yeah, how well do you think that worked? At the same time, I was an RA of a dormitory. And every week I met with the dean. And we would talk about different things and, of course, you know, what was happening there and responsibilities and guys who were in trouble and guys who were doing well and so on and so forth. And, and I had an old car that looked good but ran bad, and, and so he would help me with his lemon fix it because he knew some stuff about cars. And, and while we were doing that kind of thing, he would, we would talk about this and we would talk about that. And, 
And I remember a day when I was in his car driving somewhere to get parts for my old car. I was all by myself. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm being discipled. My life is being changed by this man because he's pouring his life into me. Because he cares about my stupid car. And he'll help me. And in it, he'll talk to me about this and about that. How do you think that worked? And that's what the passage says. Older women, be reverent in the way you live. Not slanderers addicted to wine. Teach what is good. Once again, these are behaviors by example. Show people what it is to walk with me. And then the followers. The followers are to be learners. And the key verse here is verse 4. That these women can then train the younger. They, they need to be trainable. They need to be teachable. And so, younger men and slaves, don't talk back. Be pleasing. Don't steal. But build trust. In essence, in verse 10, he says, make him look good. Your master. Make him look good. And then... We, we, we see with the younger women, they're supposed to make the word look good. The younger women, love your husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, active in the home, and kind and subject, so that nobody can, can, can malign the word of God. In other words, the things that we say, we actually do, so nobody gets to look at it and go, nah, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Make the person that you're working with look good, and make the word look good, because we actually do what we say we're supposed to do. Just in case you think I'm making this stuff up in any way, I'll, I'll take one of these terms and I want to show you one of the ones uh, uh, for these younger slaves, the, the younger men and the slaves. He says to be pleasing. That's the same word that's used in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I've told this to you, so the guys that have been around here for a while. It's a beautiful verse where it says that we're to be giving our bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is a spiritual act of worship. And give it because it's acceptable. And acceptable. Now that's an amazing term, really, when you think about it, that you would be able to give God something that's acceptable. You know who you are. You know your own weaknesses and your failure and your sin. And you would give yourself to God. He's kind enough to forgive you. But not only that, he wants it. He loves it. He considers it acceptable, pleasing. He says, if you do that, and then you're not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you will find out what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable, pleasing, same word. He will then reveal what he wants for you, which is so good. It's used again in Philippians chapter 5, where Paul's in prison and he receives this offering from some of his disciples, people that he's poured into, and they send him this, and he says it was so pleasing, and it was a fragrant aroma. Here's the idea. You're living for another, and you're learning from them. You're following and doing whatever you can for them because of all that they've sacrificed for you, because of what they've offered you. You see the beauty of this? This relationship that's not a peer relationship, it's a pair relationship of one who is older that is helping serve the younger and the younger that is respectfully learning and seeking to please the older. Talk about cross-cultural, counter-cultural. We don't really live that way, do we? 
Can you list ways that you have been blessed by an older person and then responded in this kind of way? Can you, can you speak of relationships in your life of people that were older and more mature and had experience and wisdom that you followed and you learned from and you were so grateful for it that you thanked them and sought to do whatever you could to make them look good? Can you speak that, you know, of relationship like that in your life? Uh, maybe you can, but I just think we have a real lack of that around here. We laugh and scoff at what came before, thinking we got it all figured out and we're going to do it better. Can you say that you've been blessed by a younger person because of what you've done for them? Can you speak of relationships in which you're pouring into somebody who's younger than you are, that's cocky and, you know, thinks they got it all figured out, but you're doing whatever you can to, to just to share what you know and and see what kind of influence you might be able to have in their life to help them avoid some of the things that you've done or, or learn some of the things that you have learned that have been good and helpful? Can you speak of relationships that you have like that? Hmm. I don't know, but I kind of doubt it. You see, this really is countercultural thinking and behavior for us. Pairs, not peers. I have nothing against relationship with your peers, but that's not going to answer the need of a next generation. Who's your Paul? Who's pouring into you to help you be what you need to be so that you can turn and have a Timothy and a Titus and pour into them? You see, this might be a real step of faith for us. Finding and nurturing relationships like this, it's a dangerous one, particularly being the Paul. Because somebody's going to look at you and say, so what do you do? Well, the Bible says... No, 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 what do you do? This may be one of the reasons that we don't do this, because it's dangerous. It means we actually have to do what we say we believe. Thirty years ago, I had a Paul. And he recently wrote to me uh, and two other guys that he has had a significant amount of influence in that I, we also know each other. There's three of us, so there's four. And he set on a calendar, spring of 2014, Far enough along that, you know, he knew he'd get us in a weak moment when we'd all say, yeah, 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 we'll do that. And, uh, and yet he put it on a calendar. And in the spring of 2014, we're going to be meeting so that 30 years later, we can talk about what God has done. You see, these are relationships, not programs. So that caused me to sit down and try and list. And I can list 21 Pauls in my life. Past, present, 21 of them. I can list 33 Timothys in my life. All the way along. Now, you're looking at me going, yeah, well, you're a pastor. You know, you have that kind of thing. 
All right, so my numbers are a little higher because of my occupational hazard, okay? But you ought to be able to come up with some numbers. And particularly, if you can look up and say, these were people who were Paul's in my life, or are Paul's in my life, or Phoebe's, or, you know, <laughs> then you should be grateful enough you begin to look down and say who's going to be my Timothy or my Titus I wasn't able to be a much a part of the Christian Service Brigade reunion dinner that they just had a couple of weeks ago because of a conflict in my schedule where they recognized uh, Bill Wood and George Westerman. But I did get a report from Ellen Putback in which she wrote this to me. I was struck that a number of testimonies seemed to indicate that the fruit of the leader's investment was decades in coming for a number of the boys, now men, but that their time in brigade powerfully influenced their lives, whether they realized it at the time that they were participants or not. Those grubby little sweaty rugrats here, rug here on a Friday night in that room were represented by some men of tremendous influence. Four of them are pastors, two of them are missionaries, and one of them showed up here in a Maserati. So he has a certain kind of influence that apparently he's using for God's glory. And there is a key opportunity to reach this world today through this particular principle, and here's why. It used to be that people had to believe before they wanted to belong to anything. It used to be that way. You went to a church because you wanted, you already believed what they believed and you wanted to be with them. More and more, we are finding people who want to belong to something to figure out whether they're going to believe it or not. And that's a huge shift. We have so many opportunities to be socially connected, technologically, people have a huge void in their life for real relationships. And there are some of those people coming to this church to try and figure out whether they want to believe this or not. We have more opportunity than we realize to be Paul's to Timothy. And if you're a Timothy, then I hope you'll speak up to me and to others saying I'm looking for a Paul. What does that mean? A couple of important observations. You can start relationships with people who don't believe, who want to see how you live so much easier than you may even realize. It's just dangerous, that's all. It means you're going to get asked some hard questions. But the most effective ministry that I've had is when I've finally gotten to a level of relationship and understanding and friendship and intimacy with my Timothys and they had the freedom to ask me the tough questions. And I can't claim I always had the best answers. But what I did have was a growing relationship in which we together became more of what God wanted us to be. And the other way is true too. 
the most humble, genuine, real, frail people that were my Pauls had more influence in my life than the people who seemed to have it all together that didn't have any time for me. As hard as we think it is to reach an upcoming generation, I think the more difficult task we may be facing is finding enough Pauls for our Timothys. Not the Timothys for whom we would be Pauls. So there's my challenge for you. If we are not, if we are going to become something better than what those seven churches did and what Metropolitan eventually burned out as, we've got to make this a part of the equation. It's not all of it, but it's a vital part. We need to be seeking, developing, and growing pairs, not peers. So who's your Paul and who's your Timothy? Let's pray. We have so much to learn and so much in which we need to grow, Heavenly Father, because you have so much more in store. We want what's next, and maybe we're not even ready because we're so lost in ourselves or in our own ways and We're laughing at what's old and we're scoffing at what's young. You did it in the life of Titus as you used Paul to make him the man he needed to be and then you used him to establish these churches and move on to do so much more. So we know it can be done and we long to see it happen here. And we recognize it needs to begin with us. So we ask for your grace and your wisdom and the courage to step up and step out and be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.